Good afternoon. The time is 2 o'clock. Welcome to Vox Pop for this Tuesday, January 30th. I'm Ray Graff. Today we talk about the great outdoors and the wildlife in or near your backyard. We welcome back Jeremy Hurst. Jeremy is the Game Management Section Head for the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation. Joining Jeremy today is Jim Farquhar, Chief of the Bureau of Wildlife in the DEC's central office. His responsibilities involve oversight of a diverse wildlife program, which includes management of varied habitats, species assemblages, and human demands of the resource. You got a question for these guys? Let's talk. 800-348-2551 is the number. 1-800-348-2551. Or you can email voxpop at wamc.org. The great outdoors after the news. Hello again. Welcome back to Vox Pop, WAMC's live afternoon call-in talk show. I'm Ray Graff. We're discussing wildlife today, and we welcome back Jeremy Hurst, the Game Management Section Head for the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation. He facilitates the research, outreach, and management planning for New York's big game, small game, and fur-bearing wildlife. Previously, he coordinated New York State's management programs for white-tailed deer, black bear, and moose management. Also with us is Jim Farquhar, Chief of the Bureau of Wildlife in DEC's central office. His responsibilities involve oversight of a diverse wildlife program, which includes management of varied habitats, species assemblages, and human demands of the resource. Our number to call here is 800-348-2551. If you've seen something out there in the backyard that's puzzling you, 800-348-2551. And I'm not talking about the neighbors. The email is voxpop at wamc.org. Jeremy Hurst, Jim Farquhar, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Uh, first, Jeremy, what's new in your department? What are you doing right now? Well, this time of year, we are gathering data. We've had hunting seasons occur, at least in the big game world, throughout the fall, and those are wrapping up. Uh, and we're accumulating all the data so we can look it over, assess the harvests that have occurred, and make some judgments as to what's going on with the populations. What hunting seasons are we in now? Well, we still have deer hunting occurring in a few key areas in the state where we're looking to reduce deer numbers. Um, but that'll wrap up here, well, today. Uh, oh, is the last day? Well, t- what, we got one more day in this month? Yep. Yeah, so tomorrow. And then yeah. uh, we've got small game seasons, which continue through February. Now, how do you set those dates for the seasons? I mean, January 31, it's over. Why? Yeah, so good question. In large part, it's tradition. We have histories of season setting for uh, 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 years. And so we've we've continued with those traditions. But as habitats change, as populations change, and management needs change, we have to adjust. And so for deer, as a good example, the seasons are dramatically different now than they were 50 years ago. Uh, populations are more robust, and we need to harvest more deer. And in some areas, like parts of the lower Hudson Valley and Long Island, uh, portions of central New York, we have too many deer, and providing hunters more opportunity to have access to those deer helps us manage the populations. Uh, any preliminary numbers? Anything you'd stand out to you? Yeah, at this point, we, we're not there. Um, looking at the reports that we've seen from hunters, it seems to be about on par with last year. Um, but we'll have a better idea here in the coming weeks and months. So we watch the deer in our neighborhood. They rule the roost pretty much uh, in suburbia where you can't shoot them. Um, do, do they stay in family units? We see a, a, a trio of deer that have been around since they were little. We think they're the same ones, and they're just... That's their neighborhood. 
Yeah, they do actually. The, the family unit is is organized around the adult doe, the matriarchal doe, and her offspring will stay in the area generally. Um, young male deer, a year old, will generally disperse from where they're born, uh, either in the spring when the doe is about to give birth to the next year's fawns or the following fall. And they may go a mile, they may go 10 miles from where they were born and set up set up their own space. Uh, but the f- doe fawns generally stay in the area of the mother. And so you'll end up with multiple generations of female based family groups that are in the same vicinity. So interesting. We're joined today by Jeremy Hurst and Jim Farquhar of the New York State DEC. Jim, I, I read your uh, sort of description of what you do. I'm still not sure what it means. What do you do? <laughs> well, you know, that's a really good question. Some days <laughs> I have to wonder about that myself. Uh, but, uh, you know, to follow up on on some of what Jeremy was just talking about, uh, as, as the bureau chief, I'm I oversee the activities of the entire Bureau of Wildlife around the state. Uh, so obviously the game section uh, activities that Jeremy just spoke about, those sorts of things, I I don't want to say supervise. Uh, I try, try to pay enough attention and try to make sure that he's able to get his good work done. Uh, but we've also got the other side of the house, uh, bird mammal diversity, uh, herps, invertebrates, uh, amphibians and reptiles. Uh, all of that sort of thing, uh, species of greatest conservation need, endangered and threatened species management, uh, whether that's protection mechanisms or enhancement uh, through you know, work we do to ensure that they uh, flourish. Uh, and we've got a pretty big land management section as well. We manage about 250,000 acres of wildlife management area, uh, habitat generally for wildlife or wildlife-dependent uh, recreation. So all of those things kind of together and then a few other smatterings um, I've also got in, in our camp the Wildlife Health Unit uh, and also our Special Licenses Unit, which deals with uh, multiple licenses to possess wildlife in, under different circumstances. So basically what I'm, what I'm gleaning here is that you just boss people around. That's pretty much it. And, you know, I like to say I try to run enough interference so that they can get the work done. Is it working out, Jeremy? Yeah. No. <laughs> Fair enough. Very noncommittal and cool response there. The number is 800-348-2551. Jeremy Hurst and Jim Farquhar join us from the New York State DEC. What's the most endangered species that we have in this state right now? Boy, it's it's probably hard to say, but, you know, one, one that comes to mind is the Chittenango ovate amber snail, um, known from only one location in the world, uh, Chittenango, as you might guess. Uh, very, very small population, isolated to essentially one location that um, is probably not under huge um, human threats other than climbing, uh, changing climate and conditions changing, and will they be able to persist into the future? How sure are you that that is the only spot where they exist? Um, we'll say quite sure. Uh, because a lot of folks have looked, although I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, mention that uh, we're actually uh, undergoing some efforts to move them around to a couple of other locations uh, to see if they might uh, be able to persist in those locations. Um, what do you think special about the Chittenango area that, that these uh, mollusks, are they mollusks? Why do they like that spot? You know, I think it probably boils down to an isolation thing. Um, over thousands of years, they were isolated sufficiently that they probably existed in other places, but other populations winked out, uh, and they persisted there for whatever reasons, uh, probably the right microclimate underneath the falls hmm. um, that persisted long enough for them to continue to be there. What do they eat? 
Um, basically vegetation uh, that grows in the spray zone of the falls and at some times of the year sort of rotting detritus, uh, hmm. you know, leaves from trees up above. What eats them? Probably just about anything. Yeah. Uh, I would guess, you know, some birds and other other um, critters would probably eat them. But you've not tried one? Uh, no, I haven't. We're joined today by Jeremy Hurst and Jim. By not the way, intentionally. By the way, Jim, uh, you know, I'm sure Jeremy warned you of the inane questions you'll be getting here until we start taking calls. Uh, Jeremy Hurst and Jim Farquhar join us, and uh, it's wildlife today on the program. 800-348-2551. Email is voxpopwamc.org. Well, let's grab a call or two before the first break, and we'll go to Glens Falls. Mike, you're on. Hey, how are we doing today, guys? Yeah, pretty good. How about you? No, not too good. I mean, me and my buddy here, we were out laker fishing on Scroon Lake the last couple of days, and we can't seem to figure out what to do. We're not sure what to do here. Well, if you found ice, that's a good start. I you guys might have some insight. Boy, you're out of uh, you're out of my bailiwick there. I think, as Jeremy just mentioned, if you found ice, that's a good start this year. Um, <laughs> I I try different depths, but uh, you know, I'm a wildlife guy. I stay out of the water. Jeremy, any, oh, gotcha. any ideas? You know, I went ice fishing once, and I decided that was enough. Yeah, Mike, are you are you a regular ice fisherman? Do you enjoy it? I do enjoy it. I do enjoy it a lot. You know, I, I like to try and spend as much time on the water as I can, no matter if it's frozen or, you know, not. So, basically, you have a little hut, and you sit out on the ice in the cold weather, and 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 how do you stay warm? And and how do you, I mean, how do you not get bored to tears sitting out there? Well, you know, I, I make sure to wear a lot of layers, and, you know, you bring your little Mr. Buddy space heater and a little charcoal grill, and it's not too bad. All right, man. Well, thanks for the call. Appreciate it very much. 800-348-2551. One more here, and then we'll take a break. We'll go to lovely Katona, New York. Carl, you're on. Hey, good afternoon, Ray, and your company. Hey. So good to be on. Um, I want to tell you about why life is good. Okay. Last night, <laughs> last night at like eleven fifteen at night, there was a board meeting down my hill here of coyotes. Ooh! And I was, <laughs> this was so great. They started to sing to each other, and after a while, it sounded like there were at least a dozen of them, and they were all howling for maybe fifteen or twenty minutes together, as as this great. Uh, you know, meeting an association of coyotes, and it was just the greatest thing. And um, the other thing that brings me great joy is, um, especially during the summer, we hear um, great horned owls. Mm. And you'll hear them corresponding, too. They'll be out on the trees, and one will hoot, and then from the far distance, you'll hear a similar hoot come back, and they'll talk back and forth. And this is what makes life good. <laughs> That's really cool. Now, have you guys experienced this out in the wild? Oh, sure. Yeah. And, Carl, if you haven't done this, both of those species you can interact with in the same way. No way. So you can actually stimulate <laughs> the coyotes to call by calling to them. Um, and so you could have joined their board meeting if you like. Do you want to do that? Well, my, well, sure. I mean, they're a my, lot of fun, right? They sound, sound like a crowd. <laughs> One thing to be aware of with the coyotes is it's generally only a few. You wouldn't find a, a group of 12 uh, in a board meeting, as you say. But what you probably are hearing is a family group of four 
possibly five. And it's amazing the way that their vocalizations are, how how numerous they sound. They sound like a larger group than what they really are. Yeah. Um, but the same with owls. If you were to go out and hoot like an owl, uh, you'll hear that respond <laughs> off in the distance. And you might, if you're patient, hear it get closer and closer over time. Carl, we got to take a break here, but I wonder if you can clear something up for me. In northern yeah. Westchester, and I've heard this, do the coyotes always drive Range Rovers? <laughs> no, no. That's very good, right. Ray. Well, thank but you very much. Bump. Listen, man, I appreciate Enjoy. the call. Uh, we'll get back to the phones at 800-348-2551 in a moment. Fox Pop on WMC 800-348-2551. It's wildlife today with a couple of guys from the New York State DEC, Jeremy Hurst and Jim Farquhar. The email address is voxpopwmc.org. Before we hit the email bag, we we're talking about talking to the animals before the break. Carl likes to listen to the animals. You guys like to talk to the animals. And birds. You can talk to birds and they'll respond, right? Anecdotally, I... I I think I've heard this happen or people say it. Do they leave gifts? In other words, I was up on the roof of the station during the last snow and, uh, you know, just taking the air, as it were, and the, the, the roof was clear. There was nothing but snow. Come back a little later on, a couple hours later, there's a little, looked like a little clear piece of ice with some green in it. And I said, oh, well, what's that? Snow melted over the course of days. It's still there. It was a marble. And it seems like a bird must have... There was no way to get up to that roof except through going through stairs inside. Do, do they leave gifts? Do they leave things on... I, you know, I, I don't know that I'd say they leave gifts, but birds and... and yeah, birds in particular sometimes are attracted to shiny objects, uh, like some people are. Um, and... You know, they'll pick at those things and probably try to figure them out. And uh, obviously that wasn't a food item, so yeah. probably abandoned it. That's pretty cool. It's still up there. So if you guys want to take a look after the show. Nice. I hear crows, actually. We'll do that. Well, there are a lot of crows up there, yeah. so maybe that's it. All right, but enough about marbles and such. Let's go to the email bag. And this one is from AC. Woodstock is located within the Catskills Forest Preserve. Local government plans to delete current zoning laws that protect the environment. New zoning laws allow up to 40 apartments on two-acre lots. This new proposed law would be devastating to the ecosystem and the environment. Can the DEC get involved to keep current zoning laws in order to protect wildlife habitats? Local government claims that the new zoning changes protect the environment, but it is doublespeak. Allowing tens of thousands of apartments to be built will devastate the ecosystem. And that's from AC in Woodstock. Thoughts, or is it too politically hot for you to mention? Well, uh, just a, a, a real quick thought. We generally don't get into local zoning issues. A lot of our uh, regulatory and protective measures tend to deal with things like uh, water discharges and the cleanliness of them, uh, protection of freshwater wetlands, uh, protection of, uh, of streams. 
in those habitats. And all of those things would still be in effect um, with a building project, okay. for example. Uh, but, uh, but you know, density of housing is not something that's generally a local jurisdiction thing. Okay. This is from Roger in Albany. How bad is the winter tick infestation of moose in the Adirondacks this year? Could the panel discuss the impact on possible remedies? Sure. Well, so the exact answer, I don't know uh, how bad the winter tick issue is this year relative to other years. But I can say that our experience in New York with winter tick is quite a bit different than most of the other New England states and and, uh, even some states out west. We have not seen heavy infestations of winter tick in New York, and so we're grateful for that. Our moose are still subject to parasite risks and and such, but, but winter tick has not been a really big issue. One of the things that we see with winter tick in the Northeast is that it has a density dependence where when moose numbers are are large and their populations are more densely packed, they have greater risk of winter tick uh, impact. And we have a relatively low density moose population, so we haven't seen that issue for us. But we have seen winter tick presence, and so that risk is there. Should our populations increase, it could become more of a problem. Currently, our moose are... are uh, well, they deal with a bunch of parasites, and, and a liver fluke seems to be an important one for moose in the Adirondacks. Uh, brainworm is another one, a P-tenuous. Um, and so we're grateful that winter tick isn't adding into that at any substantial level yet. Uh, this email also about moose from Mark. Does the DEC see a point sometime in the future where moose hunting would be allowed, thinking about the problems in New Hampshire and Vermont with moose ticks because of overpopulation? Uh, Jeremy's looking at me. <laughs> um you know, I think it's something that we'd certainly want to have on the table for consideration. I think presently our moose numbers, as Jeremy indicated, are relatively low. Uh, they're relatively confined to certain portions of the Adirondacks, um, primarily. Uh, I think we'd want to know that our populations are first growing, uh, and um, then you know, essentially take it from there. Um, when they're at a point where some harvest could be sustained, I think it's a conversation that we want to have. And, and people eat moose meat. Oh, oh yes, it, it uh, it's it's wonderful table fare, uh, not unlike venison. Yeah, uh, but uh, certainly in uh, up to the north in Canada, very important uh, food source for the uh, for for the natives uh, tribes and, and indigenous peoples up there. They're so huge. I mean, how much meat can you conceivably get off off a moose compared to say a deer? Hundreds of pounds. Really? Hundreds of pounds. Yeah, I think on a large bull or maybe even a large large cow, you might be looking at 400 pounds of, uh, of wow. edible meat. Amazing. This one's from Sally. It's about raccoons. How can I discourage raccoons in my yard and home in the village? They've raided my small chicken flock. They came in through the cat door to eat cat food. I put the cat food away at night, but they still come to check. When they are fighting or mating, it's extremely loud in the middle of the night. How do I suggest they rehome elsewhere? That's from Sally, who is decidedly not in love with raccoons. Well, that's fair. I mean, they are pretty pretty remarkable animals to watch, uh, but they can be noisy. And they can be damaging. And so I think Sally, in her in her actual in her email, identified com- some of the problems. Right? She recognized that the chicken coop is an attraction, and the the pet food is an attraction. And so as long as those food sources are unavailable for the raccoons, they're going to figure it out, and they're going to go find somewhere else where there is food. So if she can persist uh, in keeping those food sources unavailable to the raccoons, making sure that her chickens are secure, because raccoons are pretty ingenious in breaking into chicken coops. Um, maybe some hardwire cloth that can be nailed in place over top of chicken wire because um, they can get their hands through the chicken wire, and they'll certainly try to pull a chicken out through the chicken wire, which isn't good. 
No, that's but, filleting the chicken as yeah, it comes yeah. out. That's it, prepping for, for the meal. So make sure those food sources aren't there. And uh, access to garbage or bird seed it could also be an attractant for the raccoons. Um, and talk with your neighbors, too, because if they're feeding the local cats that are running around outside, that's going to be an easy target for the for the raccoons. So where do raccoons live? Do they live in the trees? Sure. They do? Well, they'll they'll be in a tree cavity or uh, or in an underground cavity, maybe in a barn that's uh, underneath a shed. They'll find a place to get some security. But they, they've been known to climb trees. Right? Oh, sure. We've seen them, I oh, yeah. think, in our neighborhood. What, what do they sound like? I, I have not heard about them making any noise. Well, we'll have to ask Mandy to come back. Oh, so you can't do it. <laughs> All right, fine. Jeremy Hurst. Well, I can. Go ahead. All right. Shot, All right, I, I, Jim Farquhar. I, I can give you what uh, at least a young raccoon might do, and it's actually, you know, it's actually kind of a, I'll, I'll call it a wimpy sound. It's kind of a, eh, eh, eh. Huh. My kids do that, too. Yeah. They might be yeah. raccoons. And it, maybe it's just when they're looking for something. Really? And what about the adults, now that we're on a roll? Uh, I'm not really sure. All I've heard is the hiss. Oh, they hiss. Oh, yeah. When when you're in close proximity and they're not happy with you, they, they can let out a pretty good hiss. All right, fair enough. Well, that was well played, and, and you, you're welcome back now in the future on the program. <laughs> Jeremy Hurst and Jim Farquhar are on the show for the New York State DEC. Let's go back to our phones, 800-348-2551. To Wurtsboro, Sullivan County, Russell, you're on. Hey, Ray. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jeremy. Uh it's a great program today. I listen to WAMC all the time, and I wish you had more outdoor uh, programming like fishing and hunting stuff. That's great. My question is just uh, pretty basic. I, I do a lot of small game hunting, and I, and then, uh, and uh, it doesn't seem like there's as many rabbits around as there used to be when I was younger. Cottontails, I'm, I'm talking about specifically. I mean, I don't, I haven't never had the opportunity to hunt hare. But, uh, you know, I mean, eastern cottontails used to be all over the place, and now it's like they're far and few in between. Not in my yard. All right, go ahead, Jim. Okay. Well, one thing about cottontails is they tend to be a little bit cyclic in their nature. Uh, So we'll see them, uh, populations, at some point sort of explode and and numbers grow, and they'll be very, very visible. And then for a period of years, um, well, you'll start to see a decline, and for a period of years, you'll probably see very, very few. So, um, and I don't tend to think that they cycle the same in the, on the same cycle everywhere across the state. Uh, so in one area, you've got sort of this boom, and in another area, you've got the bus going on. So you're probably just experiencing that uh, those low years. Jeremy? Yeah, I'd add that there's a habitat component here because, uh, you know, small game and, and rabbits in particular require some brushy uh, early successional habitat, and if it's maturing and not creating good cover for the rabbits, good food source for the rabbits, they're gonna, they're not gonna persist in that space. Um, even in the areas that I'm most familiar with, I've seen changes in some of the the habitat conditions over the last 10 years, where um, properties that I would walk regularly would see rabbits because we had good cover for them. And if some of those shrubs have have died out as the as the canopy has grown and the light conditions on the ground are changing or more more shrubs are um, are maturing out of small stage, uh, it's less food and less cover for the rabbits. It's less thickets. Um, and, and so, you know, brush piles kind of degrade some of the habitat that they would be making their burrows under degrades and they're going to find some other places to live or, or just those local populations are going to dwindle. Russell. Yeah, okay, so it's not like coyotes or... Well, it could be. I mean, rabbits are 
like a tasty food item for a lot of animals. And they're fairly easy targets for birds of prey and for coyotes or foxes or bobcats. And so they're they're uh, they're like nature's chicken. Nature's chicken. Yeah, they are. All right. You know, not to put too fine a point on it, but chickens are also from nature. Sure. So Domesticated chickens are, are, are a far step from a, a prairie chicken. Though. All right, fair enough. Uh, let's go to Woodstock and Harriet. Hello, Harriet. Hey, hi. Um, great program. I have a question about um, not this past summer, that's 2023, but 2022. There was a disease that went through the deer population, um, apparently carried by a, a fly or a midge that had no effect on any other animals, and it killed them. And in the process of dying, they sought out water supplies, streams and things. And in where I am, they died all over the place. Mm. Now, I've been here over 50 years. And in all that time, I never heard of this thing. And now it didn't happen last summer. Can you give any follow-up on this? Jeremy. Sure. So, Harriet, great question and great observation, too, because what you're describing is a disease called epizootic hemorrhagic disease. And you're right to recognize that uh, we didn't know of this disease 50 years ago. Even, well, let's see, 15 years ago, we didn't know about it. The first outbreak that we experienced in New York of EHD was in 2011, and it was only a handful of deer in one small location. Um, but it raised it onto our radar, and so we've been keeping an eye ever since. Uh, we were keeping an eye before. It's pretty prominent when a bunch of deer in one location die in a pond, right? That's that's hard to miss. And and so we, we saw an outbreak a couple years after that, and then it took a few more years. 2020 and 2021 um, were big years for EHD in New York. And so this, like you say, is a, is a disease that's carried by a midge or a biting fly. Uh, it is specific to deer, um, and... And so it's a pretty nasty disease for deer. Once they get bitten, it's about a week-long incubation period till the disease really comes into full force, and then it's about a 36-hour period till the deer's dead. Wow. So it is a fast-acting and high-mortality uh, event for deer and can affect local populations. But it is very localized, and so the deer population as a whole um, is usually not strongly impacted. But the locate, but but in you know a square mile block, you could have a fair number of deer get killed. So we didn't see any impact of EHD this past summer, and we're fortunate that most of the areas that were impacted in 2020 weren't strongly impacted in 2021. And so there was there was some variation at where it impacted the state. But it is kind of a nasty disease, and certainly if you're a landowner and have some deer that die on your property, um, it's it's not a pleasant sight. Harriet, thanks for the call. Go ahead. And I'll only add, uh, with respect to that disease, the reason that the deer go to the water uh, is because they're running a very, very high fever, and they're very, very warm. Uh, they're actually looking for either a cool-off or at least water to drink uh, in those later stages of the disease. Now, can they pass it between themselves or only by this bite? Uh, just no. It, it comes directly from the, from the bite. Uh, does it seem odd to you guys that only one mammal is affected by this? Yeah, it's not too different than blue tongue disease. Uh, it's in the same family of diseases, and that affects some livestock. Um, and, and and so we have actually seen a variant of EHD. There's several different viral variants. Um, we've seen, I think, two different versions in the state. Um, our 
epidemiologists are probably yelling in the background because <laughs> I got something wrong. But um, but nonetheless, it's uh, it 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 isn't as strong of a concern. The EHD that we get for for the livestock producers in the state, blue tongue would be. Um, but I'll also add that. Um, because it's localized, it causes a lot of concern for people, but it's not impacting the population as a whole. So so we're grateful for that. All right, let's go back to our phone lines. Jeremy Hurst is here. Jim Farquhar is here from the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation. And we'll go over to Red Hook. Chris, you're on. Thank you very much, gentlemen, and good afternoon. We, uh, we've been on our farm here for 80 years in Red Hook. And for the last couple of seasons, we've had an invasion of beaver. And we have the sawkill that runs through the farm. And so what do we do? Okay. Well, one thing you can do is uh, reach out to your uh, local DEC regional office uh, if you've got issues and problems with them. Obviously, the fact that there's beaver present is shouldn't be too big of a concern. But if they're causing damage or problems for you, whether that's cutting down uh, trees that uh, that have some value to you, whether they're flooding your property, all sorts of issues with those sorts of things. Uh, if you're having those sorts of issues, a um, couple things can be done. If it's out of the uh, legal trapping season, we can issue a permit to remove those beaver. Uh, in some cases, we can okay. give advices to advice on ways to uh, manipulate the water levels and possibly even live with the beaver. It's not a perfect fix. And, of course, during an open trapping season, uh, simply getting a trapper in to, to remove some of those beaver to alleviate problems can be uh, very, very helpful. Chris? Well, that's, that's helpful. But, uh, are there more beaver now? Than, we've never seen beavers, really, until just the past few years. And are they exploding in population? I wouldn't say that they're exploding in population. Uh, you know, our beaver populations had really declined uh, back in the 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, we did a lot of work, actually, to get them reestablished across the state. Uh, but they're uh -huh. pretty much everywhere they're going to be where there's suitable habitat now. But that doesn't mean your location uh, has been without for 10 or 15 years and um, you've got something suitable and, and they've taken advantage of it. Mm-hmm. And just one more question, not about beaver, but about uh, the coyote population. We had two packs of coyotes for many years, and now they're gone. And we haven't had coyotes much for the last maybe five years. So do they go up and down with disease or what? Well, potentially with disease, but more likely it's just a food source issue. Uh, and the, the predator populations will fluctuate relative to and maybe following the prey populations. And so Jim described kind of the cycle that you see with, with cottontails. Uh, we see some similar right. cycles with other small mammals, uh, depending on uh, tree nut availability with, with fluctuations in oak mast and beech nuts and, and so on. You'll see some fluctuations in the small mammal community as well. And if the prey base is, is reduced for some reason, the coyotes don't have reason to stick around. Um, you may see lots of other small mammals and rabbits around, but it may not be enough to sustain the coyotes, and, and they may just have found a better spot down the road. Okay, Chris, thanks a lot for the call. When is beaver trapping season? So it begins in the fall, and it continues through the winter. You know, it occurs to me that the entire history of this, at least the capital region, going back to the 1600s, beaver pelts, it's a huge economic part of this, and then they sort of were over not farmed, but overhunted, and you brought them back. Do people still trap for those kind of commercial uses? Pelts yeah. and 
shawls or whatever they make out of them? Yeah, yes, they, they still do. Uh, you know, New York State has, in, I guess, uh, it, it varies a little bit annually, anywhere from, uh, we'll say, uh, you know, 11,000-ish trappers, uh, licensed trappers. Uh, many of them, it's probably a little bit more of a hobby thing, a um, few pelts, but they, but they sell. Yeah. Uh, as they have traditionally for hundreds of years. And uh, we've got some people that are very active. Um, but pelt prices, you know, are often are fairly low, and it almost has to be a really a, a pursuit that you enjoy um, more than make money from. Understood. Let's take a quick break here. We're joined by Jim Farquhar and Jeremy Hurst of the New York State DEC. Back to more of your calls in a moment at 800-348-2551. We'll check the email bag at voxpop at wamc.org next. Fox Pop on WAMC. Wildlife Today with Jeremy Hurst and Jim Farquhar. Jim, you've discovered uh, that you know another vocalization from the raccoon, and really, we've got to hear it. <laughs> sure. Uh, sometimes young raccoons will do this, maybe older ones as well, but it's sort of just a real simple... It's about I, as well as I can I do. didn't catch that. Do you want to do that again? <laughs> yes, yes. Now it is radio gold. So let's right. go back to the. Oh, let's see. Division director is going to have that as a ringtone. <laughs> it sounds like a ringtone. Oh, let's do a couple of emails and then we'll go back to the phones. This is from Zach in Woodstock. I read a year or two ago that wild boar populations were spreading from Pennsylvania into New York, specifically Sullivan and Broome County. I live in Woodstock, haven't heard anything more on the topic, and I wonder if it's something I should start looking for signs of in the Catskills. And that's from Zach in Woodstock. Well, Zach, good question. Um, well, we hope that there are no wild boar in the Catskills, and we want to maintain that. Uh, we don't want boar to come into New York. Uh, in fact, there were several years ago we had some boar that were uh, released or escaped from some captive facilities, and, and they actually can create a real headache, do a lot of damage. They can root up the woods and crop fields. They can kill off a lot of small mammal populations and bird populations, ground nesting birds can create a lot of ecological damage these from these wild boar. And so we've actually made it illegal to import wild boar into New York oh. or to possess them and um, and illegal to hunt them because we don't, don't want there to be a, um, a kind of an attraction for people to have these animals. And so for that reason, if there is a wild boar that ever comes across the, the state line or is an escaped animal that was held illegally, uh, we want to know about it and we want to remove it because okay. they can be really insidious in the way that they, their populations grow very rapidly um, and can be difficult to, to handle. Many states across the South in particular and Mid-Atlantic are really suffering from boar populations that have gone Hog wild. Hog wild. Well, what do you do? How do you take them off the list of life? So generally, it requires some professional level engagement where they can remove whole family groups at once. And where they, you make them go away or do you put them in another, put them back in Pennsylvania? They they eat pretty well. Yeah? But they, Oh, I see. <laughs> I understand. Yeah, it's pork, right? So so they do get utilized. So it's the other other 
white yeah, they're other white meat. Yeah, yeah. fair enough. Uh, Jeremy Hurst, Jim Farquhar, join us today. Uh, this is from Philip. Why did it take DEC until March 2023 to finally admit that a wolf that was killed in Otsego County in December 2021 was a wild wolf? They first claimed it was a coyote. Then it took a request from environmental groups under the Freedom of Information Law to get the DNA results proving that indeed it was a wolf. Why aren't they in a protected status? Well, are you uh, happy you came now? Ah, uh, absolutely. Okay. Um, so wolves are in a protective status in New York State uh, currently. Uh, they are on our endangered species list and have been for a long time. But also they're federally listed as well. So either way, they get uh, they get protection uh, in that regard. Um, so to, the quick answer to the question, though, about the testing on that wolf is. We made use of a lab that does a lot of, uh, with a sample from that wolf, that does a lot of forensics testing for us, which is, you know, sort of, uh, we'll say, law enforcement case yeah. type work. Mm-hmm. Um, they're probably a little bit more cautious, uh, maybe not quite as experienced as the other lab in genetics of canids, we'll say. Uh, and they came back based on the analysis that they did uh, with a coyote read on that animal. Uh-huh. Uh, the other analysis came back uh, wolf, obviously. Uh, we had an opportunity to look at that and look at the results that were available. Uh, it made us uh, change um, the, the the conclusion to wolf at that time. So we've since uh, we've we've added uh, information on our website and our hunting guide on how to differentiate potentially uh, between a wolf and a coyote. Um, we're asking people to alert us if they uh, encounter any particularly large wild canids, wild uh, dogs. Uh, such that we might be able to get a little bit more. Uh, but currently, um, you know, wolves, uh, occurrence of uh, documented wolves in New York State is a pretty rare thing. Uh, we had the 2021 wolf that was referenced. We had one in 2001 and I think in 2005, although one of those we, we uh, decided was probably of captive origin. So we may have had a, a few wild wolves find their way into the state uh, over the last 20, 30 years. But uh, it's a rare occurrence at this point, but we're trying to pay more attention. Jeremy, we've talked about mountain lions traveling from afar, far away. Do wolves do that as well? Potentially. You know, it, we don't know where the origin is was of the wolf that was was, was found in 2021. Um, it It's genetic history aligned with the Great Lakes wolf population. Oh. Um, and so potentially it could have come from one of the populations in um, northern Michigan or southern Canada. Uh, the, the closer populations are those in Quebec and Ontario uh, of the, the uh, eastern Canadian wolf. Um, and so it didn't quite align with that. So it's potentially that, they, that these animals could come into New York State. But like Jim said, it, it's, it's an extreme rarity. Okay. Uh, this is about coyotes. This is from Beth. It's my understanding that it's coyote mating season, perhaps the reason for the noise. Oh, that's going back to uh, Carl's call. And that's true? It's mating season for the coyotes? It is. They should be having pups here soon. All right. Fair enough. One more email and then back to the phones. 800-348-2551. Mike writes, I'm a Vermont grouse hunter where the season ends on the last day of December. In New York, the season goes to the end of February. I'd like to take advantage of that. Without driving aimlessly, Mike, do you have any suggestions about where I might look for grouse habitat in the Adirondacks or have a DEC contact who might point me in the right direction? Well, given that uh, that you're you know coming from Vermont, I, I would probably recommend the you know eastern side of the Adirondacks so that you've got a, a shorter drive, if you will. 
uh, our Region 5 uh, Wildlife Office in Raybrook uh, or Warrensburg, uh, either one uh, probably would be able to help you a little bit with some ideas. Uh, the western side of the Adirondacks also has some very good habitats uh, still uh, administered out of our Region 6 office in Watertown. Uh, I would start with one of the biologists there and uh, see if you can get a few pointers maybe so you don't have to, as you say, look uh, aimlessly. Do you need a license for that? Need you a do. hunting license. You do. Hunting license, yeah. And Jeff, um, if you check out our website, we have information on grouse drumming rates that you can actually look at an interactive map and see where hunters are reporting hearing grouse more often in the fall as, a, as an opportunity to to kind of narrow down your search of where to go. The number to call here is 800-348-2551. Jeremy Hurst is Game Management Section Head for the New York State DEC. Jim Farquhar is Chief of the Bureau of Wildlife in DEC's Central Office. And let's now go to Koksaki and Barbara, you're on. Yeah, hi. Um, Ray, I always enjoy your Vox Pop. Well, thank you. you. Are, uh, it is always informative and entertaining, so right. thank you. Thanks. Um, I, I, uh, I noticed two, three observations. I live on the outskirts of Kisaki in the more rural area. I've got like some old unused farmland. So there's like not a lot of trees, but I noticed this past summer and I know that one year does not a pattern make, but this past summer I have seen far less birds of prey and my rabbit population was crazy this year. So there's that. And then also this summer was a disturbing um, low amount of bats that I saw. I mean, is this, again, you know, it's not a pattern one year, but is there something going on? Uh, well, Barbara, I'm going to say um, probably not. Um, our bat populations, okay. is, as I think many people know, declined precipitously with white nose syndrome. Uh, you know, some species uh, in the upper 90%. Uh, we're seeing some stabilization of bat numbers uh, over the past few years, so I don't think they've declined further, which doesn't mean uh, you might not have experienced something local. Yeah. Uh, but generally, they're... I don't want to say doing, doing okay, but they're holding their own for the time being. Okay. Uh, I can't really speak to the to the paucity of raptors that you saw this year. Uh, certainly, uh, they're around. It it could have been prey-based. It could have been some other factor. Your local uh, breeding pair of, of hawks maybe moved on or or, uh, uh, or shifted. Barbara. Okay. Okay, and then just one other thing. Now, this might be like a silly kind of connection, but... Um, when I first moved up here about 20 years ago, I, I like never heard an owl. And then Kuzaki gets this, uh, you know, this thing where people paint owls and then they post them throughout the town, you know, these owl sculptures. And in the past couple of years, I have been hearing more and more owls, which is delightful. But I mean, is there any like connection? Like, do you think these like owl statues are attracting more owls to the area? Well, they don't deter crows. I know that. I suspect okay. not, Barbara. But it is an interesting coincidence. Okay. All right, Barbara, thanks a lot for the call. Let's go to Steve in town. Jerry, you're on. Yeah, this morning I was looking out, and uh, there was a golden eagle out there that the crows were bothering. And that's the first time I've ever seen a golden eagle. Cool. Yeah, they're yeah, all— Absolutely. You think uh, now, Rich Guthrie so, would say, "Okay, I need a picture. I don't believe you." But these are these are seen in this state. Well, they are. Um, you know, much more commonly, uh, an immature 
bald eagle obviously looks much like a golden eagle because they're, they're not colored up with the white head and, and white tail at that point. But we do uh, see golden eagles, particularly in the winter, passing through and in some locations even sort of camping out for a little bit. Uh, much smaller numbers, uh, but they do travel through the state. Jerry? Yes, that's good to know. I, I never even knew they were around here. Okay. Well, thanks for the call. Let's now go to New Lebanon. Roger, you're on. Hello. Hi. Um, yes, uh, this is Roger Boutard. I have, uh, about 20 years ago, had a close encounter with a black bear in the woods while I was black trumpet chanterelle picking. And now what I, what I did was I got a shofar, one, one not made out of the real deal, but one made out of recycled plastic in Vietnam. And it's a deep sound, sounds like a moose. And when you play it out in the woods, everything goes. And I, at Killington, I'm the Killington Birdman. I'm a fe- helmet covered with feathers, and I track the, the hawks and the eagles come down and try to take a piece out of it. But at Killington, I chased the bear right above the Killington Mountain School, right off the mountain. It took off at 30 miles an hour, gone. Huh. It was a huge black bear, and it was foraging food that was dropped under the lift in the spring. Wow. And I, I just gave three big hoots, and it thought it was a moose, and there's one animal they're afraid of, and that's a moose. Well, let's get the opinion of the experts here. Jeremy, what do you think of that? I think bears are wary of people, and if they make loud noises, maybe they run away. Jim? Uh, yeah, I'd agree. I think sometimes it's just uh, something unfamiliar uh, that's going to startle them, and uh, their reaction is going to be get get out of Dodge. Ro- yeah, Roger, I suspect if you used an air horn. An encounter I had with the eagle at Catamount, it came down out of the sky, and it tried to take my helmet off my head covered with, with turkey mm-hmm. and rooster feathers. And I put my ski poles up like in the gods must be crazy, and I drove it right off. And um, mm. then I went and brought a, a, a young deer that had been hit by a car yeah. to its nest wearing the helmet. That's and it observed me. And then I, I went home, and it was in a tree outside my house. Now, Roger, let, let, so let, said, let, you can come to my house, I'll come to yours. All right, that's Roger, let me just get this straight here. You, you, you're the Killington Birdman, and you, you wear a helmet with, with feathers on it. Is it. Do they pay you to do this? Uh, no, but I've been in the World Cup and uh, uh, coverage. I have five million people saw huh. me this year. I was in it twice. Wow. And, uh, I, and it has its two – I had took a Sherlin coat that was sold in a high-end shop in Greenwich, and I turned it inside out, and it's made out of Scottish uh, – uh, you know, hide golden fleece, yeah. and so that shows out, and it looks like a bear too, coming down the mountain. And I have a big tail on it, and uh, uh, this is—I played a show far all over the that's, mountain. Uh, that's well, amazing, man. So, it sounds like it's not without risks. No, it's not without risk. And Roger, keep oh, doing no, the no, good work. We appreciate and it, man. The red tail hawk got me at, at Killington, coming down to the lift at one point. It whacked the helmet. I just suddenly I looked back and I see the red tail hawk. He said, "Oh, I got mistaken." How many times have you been whacked in the head by a, a hawk? Just out of curiosity. Hmm? How that? many? How many times have you been whacked in the head by a bird? Well, well, no, the once was at Killington, and the, the eagle. I've never had any trouble with it since. It, it comes to my house. It knows where I live now. Ah, so well, it flies up here and hunts at my place. So they well, they, they 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 know exactly. Who you are? They're very smart. Roger, you win the prize, the 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 most demented call of the day, and I appreciate it very much, sir. Thank you. Call again. 800-348-2551 is the number. What what now? Let's go to Merle in Argyle. Hello, Merle. Hello. How are you guys doing? Uh, pretty good. What's up? Uh, my, I'm sort of the Grinch of Christmas. 
The Grinch uh, of Christmas. Okay. I, yeah. Uh, I take my two young men for walks in the park in Clifton Park. People in the area, I would assume, it's local, that uh, it's a wooded area near the reserve, the water reserve. Okay. Anyway, they put up Christmas decorations on the pine trees right. in December. Okay. But they don't take them down. And I picked up many of them All right. off the ground. And I've also, now I've started now, I'm taking them off the tree. Okay. Is there, is there a threat to animals? Like deer eating them, eating the ornaments. All right, that's a fair question, uh, Jim Farquhar. Well, I would say generally no. Um, in fact, some birds, depending on the depending on the nature of the decorations, might actually start picking them up to use them for nesting materials. Uh, probably the biggest issue we might see with deer, if it's sort of like a garland or or you know rope type arrangement, occasionally they can mistake those things for vegetation and and consume them, and that can obviously cause a problem uh, knotted up in the stomach. But that's a very rare uh, circumstance where we see something like that. All right. Uh, you want to add anything, Jeremy? Well, so I think Jim's on the right track. I mean, we, we have wildlife, deer, bear that get their heads caught in containers every once in a while. So depending what is left laying in the woods, it, it could become a problem that way. I will tell you that one of the funniest encounters I had with a deer involved a mylar balloon that had lost most of its its helium and was just floating at about head level in the woods. And I see this deer from from afar looking at something, staring intently into the woods. And, and so I, then I follow its train, its line of, of, of sight, and realize there's just this balloon floating there. And it didn't have enough to go to, to rise up in the woods, and it wasn't sitting to the ground. And it's just bobbing there. And that deer studied that balloon Interesting. for minutes until a little gust of breeze changed. And then the deer got scared and turned tail and went the other direction. So, Jeremy, what do you think? When did this show go off the rails? <laughs> uh, it's been a great show. Well, thank you both. Hey, Jim Farquhar, that was fun, yeah? <laughs> yes, it Marginally was. Marginally so. You. Yeah, you oh, it was great. It was great to have you guys here. Support comes from Plaza Travel Center, presenting personally escorted trips to Croatia, Japan, and Spain. Details at plazatravel.net or 518-785-3338. The Glove Theater, Gloversville, New York, presenting Love American Style, a tribute review cabaret opening February 9th. Tickets and performance dates at thegloveTheater.com. And Identity Eyewear, Albany, New York, celebrating 25 years specializing in distinctive eyewear, European styling on prescription and non-prescription sunglasses, eye exams by appointment, IdentityEyewearAlbany.com. Thanks to Jeremy Hurst and Jim Farquhar of the New York State DEC for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for all the great calls. Sorry if we didn't get to yours. We will do it again. Uh, thanks to Zachary Malloy, our engineer. Thanks to Ed Rosen, who screened the calls. I'm Ray Graff. Tomorrow, it's Antiques with Mark Lawson. That's tomorrow at 2. For now, good night, Killington, Birdman, wherever you are. <laughs>